It's Sunday night at 6 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. That's 1,800 hours on the 24-hour clock. I'm Glenn Robison, and this is KISL-FM at 88.7 on your FM dial and anywhere on the planet at KISLAvalon.com. The show is Rapidly Rotating Records, and we play 78s from primarily the 1920s and 30s, sometimes delving into the early 40s or back into the 19-teens, and on rare occasion all the way back to the knots. Tonight we'll be commemorating a motorcycle ride, we'll watch the clock, ride some waves, and go swimming. In the final segment we'll pay tribute to someone, but you'll have to listen to the whole show to find out who. I'm Glenn Robison, it's Rapidly Rotating Records on KISL, and we're coming up on 6.02 p.m. Pacific, here in the KISL studios in the greenhouse at Memorial Park, Avalon. We're a little late in commemorating it, but on September 8th in 1916, two women completed a motorcycle ride. Now, in 1916, it would be unusual enough just to have women riding motorcycles, but their ride wasn't just around town. No, no, no. Augusta Van Buren, then 32, known as Gussie, and Adeline Van Buren, then 27 and known as Addie, descendants of 8th U.S. President Martin Van Buren, rode 5,500 miles across the U.S., each on her own 1,000cc Indian Power Plus motorcycle. The Van Buren sisters left Sheepshead Bay, New York, on July 4th, hoping to prove that women could serve the military as dispatch riders. A contemporary newspaper reported impossible roads unseasonable weather and difficulties in untold number and magnitude were encountered at every turn. Washouts, mountain slides, desert wastes, and wrecked bridges delayed them but did not deter them. While in Colorado, the sisters took a little side trip and became the first to ride motorized vehicles to the top of Pikes Peak. Despite succeeding in their task, their applications as military dispatch riders were rejected. Addie went on to get a law degree, and Gussie became a pilot. Thanks go to my wife, Rita, for suggesting this story as a segment topic. Having logged about 300,000 miles myself, starting on a Honda 90 and ending with a 1989 Honda Goldwing 1200 Interstate, many of them with Rita as passenger, I'm especially happy to play this set of rapidly rotating records about motorcycles. Thank you. 
var kött och den sa jag, jag ska du ha en bra Så är det bäst att den får 4 000 skott Jag har en extra fin med tid och ansmaskin Du ser den stor på ner på sidan Du slår bensin i ett lite hål så här och rycker till Man icken sen så ber du som sjuttan Och tingle duntan, på häst och kan du vara utan Men och jag köpte sa jag, fyra tusen la jag upp på däcken och sen var jag med och sa Så gick som en raket, han hette ju på mig, just så svarade rökan svansen Polisen ropte, nu kör du rast för fort, du sänker ner både folk och husna lort Och sänker du dutsan, och ta med skjutsan, och nummer vakt är du utan Men då kom Karlsson från stan och åkte dån Jag fick ett rep av en annan känd person Och singlade dussan och tann med skjutsan Men hästen kan en knapp vara utan Jag cykel är nog fin men kör med bensin Det tycker inte jag är bra min kristin Och ta till mig som så Sätt ut saker och få Sätt ett nära för maskinen Nu sitter hon i sin tid och vann så glad Ja, jag sitter på titten bredvid Och singlade dussan Det går som skjutsan Men mera kan If you had a little trouble understanding the lyrics on that record, it's mostly because they were sung in Swedish. That was Motorcykeln, or The Motorcycle, composed by Skanska Lasse. Victor recorded it June 9, 1928 in Chicago, and issued it as catalog number 81333, and also Bluebird B-2732, the disc we heard. Ali Skratholt was the stage name of Swedish comedian Hjalmar Peterson known as Ali from Laughtersville, popular on the vaudeville circuit during the 1910s and 20s. He was preceded by Oscar Shaw with Michael and his motorcycle. At least that's what the label of Columbia A2027 says. The title on the sheet music by Joseph McCarthy and Howard Johnson is Michael on his motorcycle. That recording is from May 16, 1916, just a couple of months before the Van Buren sisters embarked on their motorcycle adventure. While maybe not specifically about a motorcycle, we started the set with the Motor March, banjo solo by Fred Van Epps. The Motor March was written in 1906 by George Rosie and had been recorded twice by banjoist Vess L. Osman for Columbia in 1906 and Victor the following year. Fred Van Epp's recording was made March 10th, 1916. I'm Glenn Robison, and this is Rapidly Rotating Records. It's about 12 after 6 Pacific Daylight Time. That's 18.12 on the 24-hour clock. Once again, a huge thank you to all who helped make our recent t-shirt campaign a success. On one of the shows during the campaign, I played a couple of clock-related tunes, but talked over Clarence Williams' Watchin' the Clock... So, with apologies to Clarence, here's the complete unstomped on record.
the clock, pacing the floor, waiting for a knock on your front door. Tell me, have you ever felt that way? And say, you can't sleep a wink, you can't eat a bite, and everything is wrong and nothing's right. Tell me, have you? Oh. 
Orchestra Raymond with Dancing Clock, written by Montague Ewing. That's from British Columbia, DB1563, from sometime in 1935, and I have no information whatsoever on the Orchestra Raymond. Before that, Ford and Glenn, that would be Glenn Rowell and Ford Rush, with What Do We Care If It's One O'Clock. The duo wrote a lot of their own material, but What Do We Care If It's One O'Clock was penned by Larry Shea, Joe Goodwin, and Paul Ash. Columbia 474-D will be having its 96th birthday in two days. Ford and Glenn started recording in 1924 and stayed together for the next six years. They were affiliated with the massive Chicago radio station owned by Sears Roebuck & Company, WLS, which stood for World's Largest Store. Clarence Williams and his orchestra started us off with Joe King Oliver's tune, Watching the Clock, from OK8663, December 19, 1928. 
And speaking of clocks, it's about 25 after 6 Pacific Daylight Time. This is KISL Avalon, and I'm Glenn Robison. Last week I played Joe Belmont whistling the Ben-Hur Chariot Race March and said we'd be hearing more from him. I don't think it would be a particularly great programming idea to have an entire segment of Joe's whistling records, so I'll play one on each of the next three shows or so as the basis of a segment topic. Joe Belmont was the stage name of Joseph Walter Fulton, born July 22, 1876, in Shimokan, Pennsylvania. As a child, he studied piano, became skilled as a bird impressionist, and began performing publicly in 1892. He made his first recordings for Columbia in 1894 and became so popular, he appeared across the U.S. as well as in Europe and Australia. When dental problems forced his retirement from whistling, he created a show with his assistant Virginia called the Belmont Canary Opera, starring trained talking and singing birds. Virginia later married Joe's son, Walter, and when Joe opened a birds-only pet shop in Rockefeller Center called the Belmont Bird and Kennel Shop, they helped run the enterprise. Joe Belmont died August 29, 1949, but Virginia continued putting on shows and ran the store into the 1980s. Here's Joe Belmont. Thank you. 
Cinco Merrymakers with Over the Radio Waves, written by Victor Rose, Cora Gordon, and Bobby Gregory. That's from Grey Gull 1896, made around June of 1930. It was also issued on Van Dyke 81896, as by Victor Rose and his Roamers. Before that, the Victor Continental Orchestra, with the very recognizable Waves of the Danube. You may think that was written by Johann Strauss, but no, no, no. It was written by Romanian composer Josef Ivanovici in 1880. This recording was made March 30, 1926 by Victor, but not issued until May 12, 1938, on Victor 25-1018. We started off with another nautical tune, Over the Waves, also sounding like it could have come from Johann Strauss, but no, Over the Waves was written by Juventino Rosas. Joe Belmont recorded it several times for Victor on April 23, 1903, on 9-inch Xonophone 5438, and the disc we heard, 10-inch Xonophone 5067, made sometime before November 1905. I'm Glenn Robison, and this is Rapidly Rotating Records, 78 RPM records from the 1920s and 30s, on Island Radio for Avalon and Beyond, KISL 88.7 FM on your terrestrial radio. It's about 36 minutes after 6 Pacific Daylight Time. That's 18.36 on the 24-hour clock. As you know, we're here in the KISL studio each and every Sunday evening, but you can hear us any time of the day or night, anywhere in the world that you have an Internet connection, just by going to rapidlyrotatingrecords.com. A video making the rounds on social media was brought to my attention last week. It shows a blonde woman walking through security at MIA, Miami International Airport, carrying a backpack and a purse and checking her phone. Nothing unusual about that. What is unusual is that she was wearing nothing, and I mean nothing, but a green bikini and a face mask. Now, of course, there are no vintage songs about bikinis, and itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny yellow polka-dot bikini 
and her bathing suit never got wet by the Andrews sisters or outside of our parameters. But here are some other rapidly rotating records about swimming and bathing. Don't forget. 
forget to bring along your fishing pole. Could I lie beneath the tree? Of course, from care you're going to be free. Oh boy, it's great to lie on the bank and look at the sky. I'm dog and let the rest of the world go by. But if it gets to war, why then we'll dive right into the pool. I'll bet that feels nice and cool. Why you forget about home, sweet home. On the label of Regal 9123, made in July of 1921, Billy Jones and Ernie Hare, the Happiness Boys, are credited as Harry Jones and Billy West singing Down at the Old Swimming Hole, written by Bert Kalmar, Harry Ruby, and Herman Ruby. Charlie Strait's Rendezvous Orchestra started the set with Bathing Beauty Blues. Ray Cooper wrote the music, and there are words written by Andy Lawrence. That's from a Paramount 78 recorded in September of 1923. Lawrence and Cooper might have gotten the inspiration for their song from a contest that was being sponsored that summer by the Chicago Evening American newspaper to find Chicago's most beautiful bathing girl. Pictures were published daily in the paper, and the winner of the contest, which closed August 15, 1923, received an all-expense-paid trip to Atlantic City to represent Chicago in the great beauty pageant. The Chicago Evening American, a Hearst paper, was published from 1914 to 1939. Several times over the past few years when I discovered what to me at least was obscure or even new information about a song, artist, or composer, at the end of the segment I'd say something like, now just try and name another vintage music radio program anywhere on the planet where you're going to get that degree of information other than right here on Rapidly Rotating Records. Well, I'm sorry I ever said that. Some of you out there, perhaps many or even most, know of Phil Schapp, who sadly passed away earlier this month. 
Phil was a record collector, jazz historian, Grammy Award-winning record producer, and jazz educator, and for over 50 years, the host of various jazz radio programs on WKCR-FM, the student-run station at Columbia University. I had heard Phil Schaap's name tossed around a few times on Rich Conady's show, The Big Broadcast, on WFUV, the voice of Fordham University, one of the inspirations for this show. I think Phil and Rich could be described as friendly rivals, but I had not heard one minute of any of Phil's thousands of shows until it was suggested by a listener that I make note of his passing. I frankly had no idea how I was going to pay tribute to a DJ and show I'd never heard, but when I read Phil's New York Times and Washington Post obituaries, I went in search of and found hundreds of hours of archived shows. This was originally going to be a birthday segment for Leonard Feather, born September 13, 1914. One of the records I picked out was his Calling All Bars, originally recorded December 15, 1939, by the sextet of the Rhythm Club of London, a group put together by Leonard Feather. Now, if I were Phil Schapp, at this point I'd probably go off on a tangent for the next 20 minutes or so, extemporaneously expounding, perhaps even pontificating, on the Rhythm Club of London. But I'm not Phil Schapp. Nobody is, or is anything like Phil Schapp, except Phil Schapp. And, of course, the same is true of Rich Conady. The other recording I have of Calling All Bars is by Cab Calloway and his orchestra, featuring tenor saxophonist Leon Brown Berry, better known as Chew Berry, the preferred spelling being C-H-U, a nickname he got from a habit of chewing on his mouthpiece. I know that's true because Phil said so. As it turns out, in 2017, Phil Schapp did a 16-part series on the complete recordings of Chew Berry, with all of the solos extracted and played again in addition to the full-length records. He had done that same series decades before, but had some new thoughts and ideas. The series spanned about 42 hours, and if you're not familiar with Phil Schapp and his Traditions in Swing show, here's the seven minutes it took him to ponder why, after 1939, Chewberry played in no other band but Calloway's. I'll go straight from that into Calling All Bars. Chewberry had recorded quite frequently with Lionel Hampton in the calendar year of 39, dating all the way back to January. He had recorded extensively over the past two years with Wingy Minone. He had made numerous, although anonymous, appearances on all sorts of blues record dates, including Blue Lou Barker and Ollie Shepard. And uh, he had also recorded once as a leader. But with the very first record of September 11th of 49, and he, 39 rather, he had recorded September 6th of 39 with Wingy Minone. He had recorded extensively in April with both Wingy Minone and Lionel Hampton. He had recorded in June and in the summer uh, with Wingy Minone. And if you go back, you know, uh, perhaps I should just get this out because it'll help me so from january 12th of 38 winging minone then he records uh with teddy wilson and billy holiday in november uh, and december of 38 
He records with Lionel Hampton in January. He records with Count Basie in February. He records with Lionel Hampton in April. He records with Ollie Shepard in April. He records with Blue Lou Barker in April, with Wingy Minone in April. This is all 39. Lionel Hampton in June of 39. I forgot about that one. Wingy Minone in June of 39. Uh, and Wingy Minone on September 6th of 39. Then he records with Lionel Hampton on September 11th of 39, which is two days before Chewberry's 31st birthday. He would live another 25 months. Chewberry will never make another side person appearance other than his work with the Cab Calloway Orchestra. So there's your new observation. I mean, it's been there to observe for 80 years, 79 years, 78 years. These are 78s. No one's ever observed it. What happened? And a point here that I would make, I'll make two. I don't know what happened. Two, something happened. What causes an incredibly busy calendar of constant side person appearances away from the Cab Calloway Orchestra for whom he worked that have a frequency of as many as 10 in one month going from such a regimen to never again? And my point is that there must be an explanation. And these are some of my thoughts. One, this loose thread, which I'm sure can be furthered by uh, determined research by others than myself. Did he get married and he cuts down on his extracurricular professional gigs to spend more time at home? That's a logical explanation. When did Chewberry marry Geraldine? I don't know. I barely know that much about it other than she's listed as the first survivor in his obituaries. Is that the story? Did Cab Calloway, who was so robustly entertaining and highly friendly with yours truly, sitting in the very Dizzy Gillespie chair I'm staring at at this moment, Cab Calloway, saying, you know, Chewberry, he made all these demands on me and I had to laugh because, you know, I'm the boss and he's telling me what to do. Ha, ha, ha. Did Cab Calloway make any demands on Chewberry? You know, Duke Ellington put his foot down with Johnny Hodges. you got to stop making hit records for other people other than me. That's what the maestro said to Johnny Hodges after Lionel Hampton's On the Sunny Side of the Street. And Hodges negotiated a big raise to curtail such activities. They don't disappear completely. Did Camp Calloway do something like that with Chewberry? So there's a plausible explanation. Or is it the record company? You know, Camp Calloway records for what you would have loosely in that period called Columbia Records. It's a great complexity, and I won't go further. But Columbia was a huge competitor with the largest record company in the world, the record company Victor. And a lot of these, all the Wingy Minone and Lionel Hampton appearances are in Victor. Did the record company tell Cab Calloway, you know, your guy is helping another record company make money and hurt our ability to make money, and it's hurting you. So my points, again, one is I don't know what happened. Two, something happened. Chewberry goes 
from this incredible frequency of appearing on other people's record dates that is accelerating in the calendar year of 39 to an astounding number of such sessions. And then he never does it again. And of course, he, he lives for another 25 months. It's a month more than two years. The last side person appearance is September 11th of 39. And Chewberry dies October 30th of 1941. So something happened to cause this transition from a lot to nothing. And I don't have that explanation. I do have that observation. I have suggested a bit of a, of a, 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 a number of plausible explanations, but there's nothing firm about any of this. So uh, I've made uh, the point. I'll make one more conjecture of explanation. The schedule of the Cab Calloway Orchestra might have led to more and more one-nighters, extreme hops and travel from one gig to the next gig, and a, a large number of gigs in places that did not have recording studios and no connection, even if they did have a recording studio, with any of these artists who had record contracts in the companies that they were contracted with. That's a weak premise. It's possibly part of the explanation. It's even plausible that it is the explanation. But it really doesn't hold water if you follow the traveling of the Cab Calloway Orchestra. They spend too much time long-term in Chicago and New York for this to be so. So something happened, and I don't know what, what, what it was.
Cab Galloway and his orchestra with Calling All Bars, written by Leonard Feather from OK5731. Rust's Jazz Records says it was recorded May 15, 1940. Phil Schapp says it was May 18th. Who are you going to believe? Phil, uh, who all was in the band? Let me explain. So the Cab Calloway Orchestra had three trumpets, three trombones. One of those trombonists, Tyree Glenn, specialized on vibraphone solos. You heard him as such on the last tune there, Bye Bye Blues, both takes. They had just recently added the fifth saxophone uh, with no fewer than two of the members able to handle the baritone saxophone part. Andrew Brown tended to play it. Jerry Blake could. Walter Foots, Thomas, and Chewberry are the section tenors, and Hilton Jefferson is the primary alto. Jerry Blake, Andy Brown, Hilton Jefferson, Walter Foots, Thomas, Chewberry. The rhythm, four-piece with acoustic guitar, Danny Barker, Cozy Cole, Mild Hinton, Benny Payne. So let me give you the full personnel. The leader is Cab Calloway. He's often heard as a singer. He is often talking. He's often entertaining, regardless of whether it's speech, exhortations, or singing, he directs the band. It's his orchestra, the Cab Calloway Orchestra. The trumpet section features a very young, indeed 22-year-old, we even heard him at 21, Dizzy Gillespie, with Lamar Wright Sr. and lead trumpeter Mario Bowser. The trombones, Keg Johnson, Butter Jackson, and Tyree Glenn. Again, Glenn occasionally soloed on vibes. The aforementioned reed section, Altos, Hilton Jefferson, Andrew Brown, and Jerry Blake, with, I believe, Brown handling the baritone saxophone part. Foots Thomas handling uh, the fourth part in the stack. Chewberry, the second part, both playing tenor. Benny Payne on piano, Danny Barker on guitar, Mild Hinton on bass, Cozy Cole on drums. Thanks, Phil. Have fun in that big radio studio in the sky. I have an awful lot of listening to catch up on. I'm Glenn Robison, and I'm very pleased that you've chosen to spend this past hour with me listening to Rapidly Rotating Records. I hope you'll click in or tune in again next week, and as always, I thank you for your very kind attention.